Hello and welcome to Young Nostalgia, the podcast that takes a trip down memory lane from two guys that never lived it. I'm Nolan and beside me is Ben and we thank you for all joining us as we talk about our passion for the past while being young at heart. We're back for another week and uh, bringing back one of our old favorites, Then and Now, Volume 3 coming at you. We got Kerry Fisher, John Williams, and Norman Rockwell. Uh, you know, kind of an interesting character as uh, we haven't talked about artists too much, but it's yeah. uh, it's definitely cool to bring it in. So, um, I guess getting started, we want to thank you so much for sticking with us. It's uh, hopefully 2018's been good to you so far. But uh, Ben, how you doing, big guy? Oh, it's been a pretty good day. How you doing, Nolan? Um, my day's been subpar, but it's always good to <laughs> to come home and uh, record with you. One of the best shows there are. <laughs> now, are you laughing at my bad day, or because that's not? Um, well, I don't know. Laughing at your bad day, it doesn't sound very nice. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, all right. So we're gonna kick off with the um, late and great beloved Carrie Fisher. Um, talk about her start, what all happened. Um, you know, when she really got big into Lucas Arts and the Star Wars era, as well as what she has been doing in the past ten, fifteen years or so. So, Ben, why don't you kick us off? Okay, a little background information on Carrie Fisher. Um, she was born Carrie Fisher on October 21st, 1956 in Burbank, Los Angeles County, California. Um, she is the daughter of Eddie Fisher and uh, her mother was Debbie Reynolds. And this is kind of um, goes into one of the big Hollywood scandals um, that everyone really kind of knows about is that... Uh, Fisher ended up leaving Debbie Reynolds when Carrie was only two years old for actress Elizabeth Taylor. Um, just kind of a little side story there, um, but it's you know one of the big Hollywood scandals that everyone knows. Um, at a very early age, uh, Carrie Fisher she really had a, a big interest in books and writing poetry, and then you know we'll talk about it a little later on, but that we'll see that kind of reemerge later in life. Um, even with that interest in books and writing, she ended up following her parents uh, into show business, um, first appearing at the age of 15 in Irene, which was a Broadway show starring her mother. Um, and, you know, that's kind of one of those things that we see so often. We've talked about it, you know, how many times before is that, you know, it seems like children of famous people end up, you know, going in that direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it makes sense. Your name's already out there, but. You know, you don't really notice it until you we start doing looking into stuff like this that you notice how often it really happens. Yeah. <clears throat> Sometimes you wonder how Carrie Fisher got to start in a Broadway show starring her mother, where it's like Debbie Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> Debbie Reynolds, uh, you know, couldn't get Carrie Fisher to daycare, so she came to the tryouts of the Broadway show. Here comes <laughs> Carrie Fisher onto the onto the Broadway show. No, it probably didn't happen like that. But I I always like to think funny little stories would be fun. To at least make up about it, we could come. We could have a new podcast with history, you know, history in Nolan's perspective. <laughs> history as told by fake stories, starring <laughs> Nolan Gill. Um, in 1975, she actually made her first film debut debut debut. Excuse <laughs> me, in Shampoo, uh, which starred Warren Beatty, Julie Christie, and Goldie Hawn. Um, and then later on, of course, everyone knows her big breakthrough came 
as playing Princess Leia in George Lucas's blockbuster Star Wars in 1977, um, opposite Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford. And any listener of the show knows that, you know, we're all about that Star Wars life. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's always so interesting. I mean, a lot of the the big crew members like um, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill, they all kind of had doubts about what Star Wars could possibly be. Like nobody yeah. was really fully bought into it when they uh, started filming. Yeah, and you know, as as far as a movie goes, um, the budget was relatively low, and it was just originally kind of supposed to be this. You know, I don't really want to say B movie, but you know, <laughs> just kind of a, a normal sci-fi movie that comes and goes, and you know, now it's turned into like the biggest franchise of all time. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely, and, and it's always interesting. You know, Leia is such a a big a big part of the Star Wars the Star Wars legacy. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see like the the uncut and unedited footage of it too. Like it just seems so cheesy before <laughs> they they put it all together into one thing. But I mean Princess Leia and, and Carrie Fisher, that really kind of made who she was. And I was actually reading something before we started. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll we'll kind of get into the whole aspect of, you know, her later on drug use and stuff but if she would have known that star wars would have made her the star she was or like is she wouldn't have done it oh really yeah which i thought was super interesting you know that might be kind of a common theme you know looking at uh actors and actresses you know kind of one of those if they knew then what they know now kind of deals you know you got to wonder how how many people um have that same thought process i'm sure there's quite a few Definitely, especially since, you know, she had superstar parents, so she kind of saw what the limelight and celebrity life done to family, done to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it might be just something that she wasn't all into at the time. Right. <clears throat> so, after the big uh, breakthrough with Star Wars in 1980, she also appeared in the Blues Brothers with Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, which is another fantastic fantastic movie oh, if i, do I say love so. it i love it <laughs> did you know that dan Aykroyd was actually planning on proposing to carrie fisher on the set of blues blues brothers really yeah i didn't i was not aware of that that's funny <laughs> they had the rings like they had everything planned out <laughs> that's pretty funny but turns out she went back to paul simon a couple years later <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why it's funny but <laughs> it, it just is um <laughs> Uh, after this, she ended up, uh, kind of moving away from film for a little while. Um, and she ended up returning to Broadway, uh, later that year in, uh, censored scenes from King Kong. And then two years later, she starred in Broadway production of Agnes of God. Um, and this is all kind of leading into, uh, the early to mid eighties when Carrie Fisher struggled with a lot of, um, alcohol, drugs, and depression. Um, and at the same time, she was in a lot of films and, you know, short productions that really no one even totally not memorable in any way. (laughs) Um, just kind of that floundering time period in, you know, an actor or actress's life. Um, you know, films like Under the Rainbow, Hollywood Vice Squad. I mean, I've, I've never heard of them, Uh -uh. but (laughs) (laughs) I guess everyone's kind of got that time, um, 
But later on in 1987, she actually came back with her first novel, Postcards from the Edge, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, it was ended up being adapted into a film in 1990 um, that featured Meryl Streep and Shirley MacLaine, um, and was directed by Mike Nichols. Mm-hmm. That that book was actually written by Carrie Fisher due to an incident back in 1985, I believe, when she overdosed mm-hmm. on um, medication and drugs. I think namely cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of went through like the whole rehab and all that good stuff. And so she, well, not good stuff, but she, she wrote that book to, as like a semi-autobiography to walk right. through you know, what she had to live through and kind of share that story with the world. Um, Mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting. And I also found out I have a whole bunch of tidbits. I was reading up (laughs) on so many things before starting the show. She actually started dabbing into the whole cocaine business. Well, (laughs) the the bad business business of, yeah, the bad usage while they were filming Empire Strikes Back. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah. And I think the the, the problem, like the addiction just kind of got away from her while she was... Mm -hmm filming and stuff and then it almost became not a choice anymore so yeah Yeah. and that's you know kind of following that pattern with the height of her career and that's when a lot of people start going down that road Mm -hmm. all right switching over to now uh what a lot of people look up to carrie fisher uh fisher helped actually revise some hollywood scripts including sister act in 1992 outbreak in 1995 and the wedding singer 1998 as well as many others I actually really enjoy seeing the wedding singer on this that she helped revise the Hollywood script <laughs> for. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love it. Uh, she has also mined her own life experiences uh, to create such best-selling books as The Best Awful There Is back in 2004, Wishful Drinking 2009, and Shockaholic in 2012. I mean, she's been such an advocate when it comes to like depression, um, her bipolar disorder, and things like that where it's, it's like you need to bring awareness to it for mm-hmm. people to understand. Yeah, and she was a pretty uh, f- she was a fairly popular speaker on those topics too. I think there's the, multiple occasions where she, you know, gave uh, some sort of lecture or it came up in some sort of public speech, you know, talking about those issues. Oh, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think a lot of people appreciated her for that and kind of saw it as as a powering light in that in that kind of scheme. Because a lot of people don't really understand what bipolar can do to an individual, let alone their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so right. Fisher actually returned to the film franchise uh, with the big, great Star Wars. Um, she appeared in Episode 7, The Force Awakens, along uh, co-star Harrison Ford as well as Mark Hamill. The film, directed by J.J. Abrams, opened in the U.S. back on December 18th, 2015, broke an array of box office records, earning more than $247 million. $247 million. That's only in the States, too, um, Mm -hmm. just on its opening weekend. That's insane. Yeah, just on the opening weekend. That part's the killer part. Just in the States. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Fisher also completed filming the eighth episode of Star Wars Saga, The Last Jedi, which hit theaters last month in December of 2017. Which we which we were there, of course. Yes, yes. We, we witnessed uh, <laughs> Carrie Fisher's amazing role in that movie. Um, mm-hmm. In November 2016, she released The Princess Diarist, a memoir based on the diaries she wrote while filming the original Star Wars trilogy. 
In the book, Fisher reveals that she had an affair with co-star Harrison Ford in 1976 during filming of the first movie, A New Hope, which Mm -hmm. I think nowadays it's almost common knowledge that those two were together during that time. Yeah, it's not really a secret anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty (laughs) sure even Harrison Ford has talked about it. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I think he has on... uh, Wasn't it a late night talk show? I think he's... No, he talked about it. I think maybe. <laughs> sure, your guess is good as mine. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm making that up or not. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm not. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely public knowledge now, at least. Um, Fisher remained busy with multiple projects until she suffered a massive heart attack while on a flight traveling from London to California back on December twenty third, twenty sixteen. Four days later, on December twenty seventh, twenty sixteen, Carrie Fisher passed away at the hospital at the young age of just 60 just 60 just 60 yes she had like 25 more years to live if not more yeah i mean that's 25 more years of star wars i know no gonna miss out on (laughs) uh sad it was it was a big big sad day i mean just made ripples across the world in june 2017 a coroner's report was released which revealed that fisher had a mixture of drugs in her system including evidence of cocaine methadone mdma um, commonly known as ecstasy alcohol as well as opiates which she suffered a cardiac arrest um, while in the hospital so the report noted that sleep apnea and other undetermined factors contributed to fisher's death as well so obviously those just stack them on top of each other um, and, and everything just kind of combined in a lethal way to um, to lose Carrie Fisher. Oh, yeah. Just that that ludicrous mixture of, you know, junk in her system. You, you know, it's no wonder, you know, that, you know, she died the way she did. Um, <clears throat> there's, you know, it, it not necessarily um, happened all at once, but you know, it talked about evidence of cocaine. So it might not have been all at one time, but, you know, just all of that stuff, you know, takes such a toll on your body. Definitely. <clears throat> definitely. Especially since she, it, like, since she's had stints of it throughout her mm-hmm. past. Oh, um, yeah. Didn't help too much. All right. So we'll move on to our second uh, topic of the Then and Now Volume 3. Uh, John Williams. And this is kind of a somewhat, you know, staying with uh, the Star Wars theme. Um, John Williams, of course, being a famous composer for uh, many uh, movies and television shows. John Towner Williams, uh, generally known as John Williams, was born in the Flushing section of Queens, New York, on February 8th, 1932. Um, He came from a, uh, a musical background. His father was a musician and Williams started taking piano lessons at an extremely young age. Um, and at a young age, he ended up moving with his family to Los Angeles, California in 1948, where he attended the University of California at Los Angeles um, for a brief period of time before being drafted into the U.S. Air Force in 1951. Um, <clears throat> after his... Uh, tour of military service, Williams returned to New York City where he worked as a jazzed uh, pianist. Um, And right around the same time, he was attending the Juilliard School, studying with the famed teacher uh, Rosina Levine in pursuit of his dream of becoming a concert 
pianist. Um, and this is kind of a funny quote. Uh, <laughs> he was um, talking to uh, NPR in 2012. Um, that and he was he was talking about his schooling and what he really wanted to do with his life. Um, and he talked about hearing players like John Browning and uh, Van Cle- uh, Clyborne around the place um, who were also students of Rosina's. And he said, I thought to myself, if that's the competition, I think I'd better be a composer. <laughs> <laughs> and so, begins the trek to who we know John Williams today. Yeah, and you know, that's not a terrible decision looking back on what he ended up actually doing. Right, yeah. <laughs> So he ended up going back to Los Angeles um, where he became a movie studio musician. Um, and, you know, some of his work you can hear in films like Some Like It Hot um, and To Kill a Mockingbird, which, you wow. know, not necessarily, you know, big, uh, big ticket items for his career, um, like, you know, other movies and television shows later in his life. But, you know, that's a that's a pretty good start. Definitely. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird is a classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's seen To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, working with Henry Mancini, Williams also played piano on the theme for the television program uh, Peter uh, Peter Gunn. Peter Goon. Um, soon, Williams was composing his own music for television. Uh, in some of the shows that that, that Williams worked on were uh, we- uh, Wagon Train, Gilligan's Island, uh, and Lost in Space. Um, I'm not, <laughs> I don't really know <laughs> Wagon Train very well at all, but I mean, I grew up uh, watching Gilligan's Islands, and I've seen a little bit of Lost in Space here and there. But uh, Danger, Will, while it's in danger. <laughs> um, Williams also composed and arranged music for um, big screen uh, movies before he actually, you know, became the famous composer, um, starting off with Daddy-O in 1959. Um, he received his very first Academy Award nomination for Valley of the Dolls in 1967. That sounds um, creepy. Yeah, I can't say I'm really familiar <laughs> with that, but it does Indeed. sound a little creepy. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 1972, uh, he won another Academy Award for his work on Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and uh, around that same time, he also gained a lot of attention for his score in The Poseidon Adventure, also in 1972, um, and also received an Oscar nomination as well. Hmm. So already going into the early 70s, he already had a pretty well-established career. Um, and, you know... He has that all leading up to this. Um, he, he already had this, you know, pretty, pretty great career going. But everyone knows him best for his work with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Almost all of Spielberg's films ended up having Williams scores. Um, that's, of course, everyone knows Jaws, E.T., uh, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, List. Excuse me, I can't talk. Um Catch Me If You Can, Munich, and Lincoln. Beautiful movies just across the board. Absolutely Oh, yeah. Great. Every single one of them is was just hugely popular. And you, part of that's got to be, you know, John Williams' uh, John Williams' work on the musical score. 
Definitely. I mean, the emotion and the setting of movies, you can really tie to music. I mean, just try to turn the music off on a movie or something, mm-hmm. and it just sounds weird. It's just like you don't know how to feel in certain scenes. It's bizarre. Like right. you can look and up you, you can look up YouTube videos on it and it's just weird. Yeah, and you know, even if you even if aren't you aren't consciously thinking and paying attention to the music, it just has this uh subconscious effect on you to really help set the scene in the movie. And it's so important. Definitely. And you know, possibly one of the most known uh musical scores of all time, Star Wars. Um, Williams composed uh, the music for all six of the Star Wars movies. Um, And in 2013, it was actually announced that Williams would write the score to um, episode seven as well. So kind of continuing on, you know, that, you know, the the huge popularity of the original six. Well, Mm -hmm. I say original six as being, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six. (laughs) You mean the original (laughs) six? Well, I mean, you know what I mean. Like, there's the originals and the prequels, but I lumped them all together. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I figured listeners would, would get what I was saying. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, switching to the now for John Williams. He in, uh, was included in his Im- impressive body of work, um, kind of a laundry list. We got Superman in 1978, The Witches of Eastwick, 1987, Home Alone, 1990, JFK, 1991, um, Angela's Ashes, 1999, the first three Harry Potter films. I forgot. He was really well-known for the Harry Potter films as well. I totally forgot you know, about that. Th- that's that's something that I didn't know at all until, you know, doing research on John Williams for this show. I was not Dang. aware of that. Do, do, do. I mean, like, leave it up to <laughs> George, like, leave it up to John Williams to come up with, like, the catchiest theme songs for <laughs> movies. Um, going on, we got Memoirs of Geisha, uh, of Geisha. And the book thief in 2013. And, um, you, know, you know, I was just gonna say he he it's not like he he he's best known for you know George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, but he did so much more, you know, stuff that was you know kind of famous and you know stuff Harry Potter. That's another huge movie franchise. And look who's involved. It's John, John Williams. Williams. <laughs> <laughs> um. He's written music for um, other pieces of pop culture as well, including concert pieces and themes for several Olympic games. Now, that's that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Williams also regularly works as a conductor. In 1980, he became the conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra, a position he held until retiring back in 1993. For 13 years, he was the conductor of Boston Pops Orchestra. As of 2015, Williams has had 49 Academy Award nominations, making him the living um, person with the most nominations currently. Wow, 49. 49. I think he just needs one more. <laughs> you got to round that out to 50. It has to be. Yeah, he's got to. You know, he's got to work on something. Something's got to come <laughs> out. You know, pretty like, soon. I only did this just to get my 50th Academy Award nomination. Um, <laughs> then he's done. Yeah, then he's done forever. Uh, he won five <laughs> Academy Awards in, a, in addition to Fiddler on the Roof. Williams received Oscars for Jaws, Star Wars, the 1977, um, A New Hope, Star Wars, E.T., as well as Schindler's List. Um, Williams w- uh, has also received three Emmy Awards and more than 20 Grammy Awards for his work in television. Um, and in 2004, 
He was a Kennedy Center honoree and was given a National Medal of Arts back in 2009. Well-decorated and amazing composer and conductor uh, throughout the years that a lot of people can connect with, um, either with what he has done or you know, just the movie franchise being so influenced by who John William was. Mm-hmm. I mean, with with that many, um, with that many hits and huge movies under his belt, you know, I mean, you can't deny that there's that common theme in there of you know being John Williams the composer. Yeah, yeah. Did, did I ever tell you I found a forty five of the Cantina Band song, but it was some weird upbeat <laughs> funk version. Oh really? Yeah. Was it, was it an old forty five or was it like a new like remixed kind of thing? Or oh no, heck no! It was an old forty five. Like they actually came out with a thirty three, a full album of like these mm-hmm. funked up Star Wars themes. <laughs> but somehow I picked up the forty five and like we put it on. And you're like, yeah, I love this song. And it turns out it's some weird funk space mix. And I I was like, oh. what? Yeah, it's bizarre. Oh, that's pretty funny. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> still still a keeper though still a keeper oh yeah it's still cool to have i mean who else do you know that has one of those i don't know do yeah. you no oh, I'm just, okay. that's not what i'm saying like you know who else do you know that has? it's not like everyone has them <laughs> <laughs> i don't know do you <laughs> all right wrap us up okay moving on to our third and final uh uh artist of of the show uh norman rockwell <clears throat> Norman Percival Rockwell uh, was born in New York City on February 3rd, 1894. Um, I mean, ever since uh, Rockwell, um, since he was 14, he knew that he wanted to be an artist and really kind of spent a majority of his time uh, working towards it. He took classes um, at the New School of Art and focused all of his time pretty much on uh, his art career. He dropped out of high school at the age six at age sixteen to enroll at the National Academy of Design, um, before he later transferred to the Art Students League of New York. After graduation, Rockwell found immediate work as an illustrator for Boys Life magazine, something that we would kind of you know see later on in his life as well. <clears throat> By 1916, twenty-two-year-old uh, Rockwell um, was. Uh, newly married to his wife, Irene O'Connor, um, and had painted his first cover for the Saturday Evening Post, um, which would be the very beginning of his 47-year relationship um, with the extremely iconic American magazine. And in this period of his life is really, um, it's really what everyone knows Norman Rockwell for. Um, you know, that's really the first thing you think of is magazine covers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ended up painting 321 covers for the Saturday Evening Post. Um, and some of his most iconic covers included the 1927 celebration of Charles Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh's crossing of the Atlantic. Um, and that's kind of a common theme as well. Uh, you know, kind of focusing on uh, current events kind of uh, kind of topics and, and you know that that also you know that might have been an interest of his as well but it also really fit in with the uh, just the overall magazine mm-hmm. uh, magazine business and you know that's kind of what how that's how magazines work as well so 
Yeah, I mean, even just the aesthetic of the time. I mean, people would mm-hmm. see the the cover of the Saturday Evening Post and either be drawn to like his artwork or you know hear things about what's going on in the world and then see his unique artwork and then be drawn to mm-hmm. it that way too. Right, and he he didn't just work for the Saturday Evening Post. Um, that was you know that's what predominant in his career, but he also worked for other magazines. Um, including Look, which in 1969 featured a Rockwell cover depicting the imprint of Neil Armstrong's boot print on the surface of the moon after the successful moon landing. That's awesome. That's so cool. It is, and and that totally goes with the the current events thing. I mean, that's one of the biggest events ever. Um, <laughs> and you know, here 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 here's a cover from Norman Rockwell. Yep, um, on the magazine. <laughs> uh, we talked a little bit about Young Life earlier, but um, uh, in 1920, the Boy Scouts of America featured Rockwell painting on its calendar, um, and Rockwell continued to paint for the Boy Scouts for the rest of his life. Um, and that was something that really kind of stuck with him, and you know, he was always doing little things here and there um, for the Boy Scouts of America. In 1930... He married Mary uh, Barstow, a school teacher, um, and they ended up having three sons together, Jarvis, Thomas, and Peter. Um, and about nine years later, uh, the Rockwell family ended up relocating to Arlington, Vermont. Um, and this this new setting um, really kind of offered a, uh, a, perfect, a perfect setting for his... Uh, for him to be able to, to get, uh, ideas and material. Um, his success really stemmed from a, stemmed from a, uh, his appreciation for everyday American scenes really, and the warmth of small town life, you know, to be more specific. Um, often what he depicted was treated with a simple charm and sense of humor. Um, and talking about this, he said that uh, maybe as I grew up, as I grew up, and found the world wasn't the perfect place I had thought it to be, I unconsciously decided that if it wasn't an ideal world, it should be, and so I painted only the ideal aspects of it. And that can definitely be seen in his artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just kind of a snapshot of, of you know, what's what's right and what's great in the world. Yeah. Um. And, and not even that, but like his artwork was used for good causes, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, it brings out the good aspects in life, but also going towards the greater good, which is neat. I mean, the, the point that you're going to talk about here shortly too, but we did talk mm-hmm. about a little bit uh, before we started recording, looking through Norman Rockwell's work, it reminds me a lot of Edward Hopper and also like mm-hmm. an American artist where it was very simplistic, but also realistic. Norman Rockwell has a little bit more detail in in the paintings, but Edward Hopper has that that candid, you know, American scene, and then he put it mm-hmm. onto canvas. Um, if if people aren't too sure about Edward Hopper, uh, look up Nighthawks. You guys would would recognize that painting pretty quickly, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could kind of see the similarity, and it's pretty neat. Yeah, the common theme really is kind of just a, a snapshot of of life, and and I guess that's really, you know, the best way I can try to uh, 
verbally describe <laughs> describe the two um, is that they just look at the American life and just if you were to take a snapshot of it of just a single point in time, you know, excluding all other factors, you know, going on in the world, just looking at that piece of life, and that's that's really what they tried to emphasize. There we go. We got a separate podcast just for you. Art in <laughs> Words, starring Ben Somsack. <laughs> uh, I won't talk about Salvador Dali. That'll really trip me up. Um, uh, Rockwell, uh, he didn't completely um, ignore the issues of the day. And in 1943, um, he was inspired by President uh, FDR. And he ended up painting... Uh, the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and the freedom from fear. Um, the paintings, they did appear on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post, and they were incredibly popular. Um, in addition to that, they ended up touring the United States and raised well over $130 million, and that, which was put towards the war effort. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. They they were used mm-hmm. huge. I mean, bonds were such a big thing when it came to World War II and raising money because I mean they would bring back war heroes from overseas to support the bond effort to raise more money. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was really really big. Mm-hmm. All right, shifting over to now as we wrap up the show. Um, in 1953, the Rockwells moved to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where Norman would spend the rest of his life as well as career. Um, he was he was married. Um, well, his first wife, uh, Mary, passed away in 1959, and Rockwell. Oh, excuse me, second wife, uh, Rockwell remarried a third time to Molly Punderson, who is a retired teacher. Um, through Molly's encouragement, Rockwell ended his relationship with the Post and began doing covers for Look. So that's where the the shift came into um, his later magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, Rockwell's focus actually changed for his artwork. Um, he turned his attention more to the social issues facing the entire country. So much of the work centered on themes um, concerning poverty, race, as well as the Vietnam War, which um, was a big staple in that era. Uh, throughout the final decade of his life, Rockwell created a trust to ensure his artistic uh, legacy would thrive long after his passing. That's kind of cool, especially knowing that your artwork is is so profound um, and, and famous. He actually started a trust to make sure that that theme carried on after after he passed away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, no one no one really wants their wants their work to be forgotten. You know, especially um, especially the nature of his work being such uh, being so important to the, the the pop culture of the time through through several decades, really. Yeah, definitely. Um, no matter what the pop culture was at the time, you know, it, his work fit into it. His work became the centerpiece of what is now called the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Uh, back in 1977, one year before he passed away, Rockwell was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President General uh, Gerald Ford. Um, in his speech, Ford said, Artist, illustrator, and author Norman Rockwell has portrayed the American scene with unrivaled freshness and clarity. Insight, optimism, and good humor are the hallmarks of his artistic style. Um, His vivid and affectionate portraits of our country and ourselves have become a beloved part of the American tradition. Well, there you go, man. You can use that (laughs) quote in your new podcast. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think that pretty much summed up basically what we were saying, though, this whole Norman Rockwell section. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> we oh should have just read the quote and called it a day. <laughs> I think that pretty much said that we're not meant to be politicians because we can't put yeah. sentences, sentences that describe things together like that. Uh, <laughs> and that... And that <laughs> Um, in 1994 <laughs> film um it, okay so i we added a couple few uh tidbits on the end to kind of show you know what else in pop culture along the way that his legacy lived through so in 1994 mm-hmm. the popular film forrest gump includes a shot um in a school that recreates rockwell's girl with a black eye with young forrest in the place of the girl much of the film drew heavy visual inspiration from rockwell's art throughout the decades um Get this, you've heard these names quite a bit. Film director George Lucas owns Rockwell's original The Peach Crop, and his colleague Steven Spielberg owns a sketch of Rockwell's triple self-portrait. Each of the artworks hang in the respective uh, filmmaker's workspace, and uh, Rockwell is a major character in an episode of Lucas's Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, Passion for Life. So that's kind of cool. It is kind of cool. It's interesting that they have, not only do they have them, but it's hanging predominantly you know in their workspace which is pretty interesting so much inspiration could be drawn from so uh, this is actually a really cool thing too so since the uh the passing of rockwell's um of of norman rockwell his paintings have actually been used on multiple occasions for research regarding right hemisphere damage uh in in human brains so what it kind of boils down to is that individuals with individuals with right hemisphere damage tend to have like multiple deficits when it comes to like processing visual images and so Mm -hmm. his paintings are used but without the title of the painting so there'll be norman rockwell's painting um you know in the study and they would ask people with and without right hemisphere damage like what do you see what do you kind of gain from this so what happens is that people you know generally with right hemisphere uh damage they are unable to put the entire picture together so a lot of times they can't process like emotions that they see or they'll take it literally where it's like if they're sitting on a bench they're saying well they're sitting on the bench and they're not doing anything else there's no there's no context without Mm -hmm. knowing what it actually is that's why they take away the title so i thought that was really kind of neat and how realistic but also simplistic his his paintings can be is a great way to research this brain damage yeah and it <clears throat> and you know there's they're really great subjects for that because there is you, there is so much going on and it's not like a a lot of other art where it's you know it's really pretty subjective you know the meaning behind something or something like that i mean i mean that can be said for all for all artwork but his have that that uh Americana that it was it, it's really pretty obvious you know really what the, the subject matter what it's going for in the in the artwork and and uh, so much going on and that and it makes it a good uh, test subject uh, for this uh, right hemisphere damage um, because it you it makes it easier to uh, quantify in some sort of research I mean you can't quantify art in any way but you know this is you know, one of the better ways of doing it, uh-huh. I guess I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, it's the closest you can get to being able to quantify something like that. 
Art I think and I Words, have... starring Ben Somsack, <laughs> coming out next week. Yeah, that was a train wreck right there. But <laughs> I eventually meandered my way to a point. <laughs> All right, wrapping things up. Norman Rockwell passed away in his home in Massachusetts on November eighth of nineteen seventy-eight, um, ending a long legacy of American art. So. All right. Well, I guess there's not much after that. Pretty abrupt ending. Yeah, I just felt like after my uh, my train wreck there, I probably should just you know keep any thoughts to myself around <laughs> that last point. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for joining um, Young Nostalgia here this week as we continue our journey through retro pop culture as always if you enjoy the show please leave a kind review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen we're on google play stitcher um spotify you know wherever wherever you get your podcasts leave us a kind review it really does mean a lot and it'll help uh you know grow our audience and um you know let other people share the love that we love giving you guys. So if you have a future topic or you want to be a guest on the show, give Ben and I an email at youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com. I think we should almost think about getting a different email because it's 2018 now. So we should probably just drop the year. So uh, there's no <laughs> there's no ambiguity in, 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 in the... Well, I, well, yeah, I suppose that's true. But it is the year that we got started. That's true. So it's not a random year. But <laughs> it's not just yeah, that's probably true. Year. <laughs> that's very true anything else big guy no nope, i think we got it all all right man that was a great show i love it end of then and now volume three carrie fisher john williams and norman rockwell i think we're going to be coming to you next week we're going to start a couple episodes of a uh you know like a a mafia the mob special of uh, mm-hmm. one or two episodes kind of breaking down the, the major yeah. families and, and kind of where it got its roots and uh, how it changed uh, american history for ever <laughs> yeah i mean that you know that's something we'll definitely have to split up into multiple shows just because just because there's so much that goes into that i mean there there's so much history you know that happened with just the mafia that there's no way we could make you know a single show just glossing over <laughs> the high points <laughs> Heck no. I mean, then, like, if we make two shows, we're sort of glossing over a lot. But I think... Oh, yeah, no kidding. It it would be a great show. It'd be tons of fun. So, anyway, as we always say here on Young Nostalgia. Keep the bottles empty and the ashtrays full. Take care, everybody.